You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to Psalm 104 in connection with Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines that flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are refuge for the conies. The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away, they return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the leviathan which you form to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on, he looks, he who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord. O oh my soul, praise the Lord. 
I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as you find it in Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the human body is a most amazing thing. If you analyze how your eyes or your ears or your nose or your mouth works, or how all of the extremities of your body are meant to function, then you cannot but be astounded. And that also goes for your hands. I'm sure that none of you spend a lot of time looking at or thinking about your hands, but you know they are worthy of some consideration. Of course, hands do many things. They come in many forms, many sizes. Hands do a lot of work. They do a lot of helping us to eat, dress, wash, and to do all kinds of other tasks and functions in life. Some hands are, are kind of small, like, like mine. Some hands are rather large. Some are calloused. Unfortunately, mine are not. You can tell. You spend far too much time on the keyboard and not enough time with the shovel. Some of you may also recall that years ago in this congregation, there was a man by the name of Brother Van Ralty. He's now gone to the Lord. And this man, of all the characteristics that he had, and he was a big man, but the most outstanding characteristic you may remember was his hands. This man had hands like shovels. And that kind of marked him. He spoke about a lot of work, a lot of years, a lot of different activities. Those hands of his, you might say, told a story of a long life and sometimes a long, hard and difficult laboring life. But you can also say, beloved, that hands tell not only a story about us as human beings, hands are also in the Bible so often used in connection with God. If you go through the Psalms, Psalm 10, 16, 17, 18, 20, 21, 32, 36, 37, and so forth, and even here in Psalm 104 that you have read with me together, it speaks about hands, only this time it speaks about the hand of God. 
And you'll notice that because the scriptures speak a lot about the hand of God, the Heidelberg Catechism does as well here in Lord's Day 10. At least three times it speaks about the hand of God. And more than anything else, that hand of God refers not even so much to his creative power as it does to his care, his providence, how he interacts with all that he's created. And so this afternoon, I'd like to preach to you on the following theme, secure in the hand of God. We're going to see, first of all, that it's a powerful hand. Secondly, a disciplining hand. And finally, a loving hand. Well, beloved, we read together Psalm 104, and it's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm that very much stresses God's greatness, God's power, God's majesty and splendor. And it's also a psalm that is quite concrete in terms of how it explains what God does with his hand. For example, it directs us to God's creative power. Notice the opening verses. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He, he stretches out the heavens. He makes the clouds. He makes the winds. He, he sets the earth. This psalm, in other words, begins by dealing with God as the great creator, molder, shaper of all of creation. But then notice this psalm also stresses the way in which God interacts with all the creatures of his creation. It talks about him giving them water, about making grass grow for them, about giving them trees for nesting and mountains as places of refuge, about the lions getting their food, and about creating a world full of all kinds of splendid creatures. So you can say Psalm 104 is first about, about, about God as the great creator. But then it's also about how God interacts with his creation in a most intimate and marvelous way. Yes, and it's also in this psalm that we see how close the connection is between God's creation and God's providence. We see this especially toward the end in verse 28. It, it shows especially then in connection with God's hand. The psalmist says, when you give food to them, they, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. The open hand of God is always a good hand. The open hand of God is always the hand of blessing and benefits. And then it also goes on, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. It's as if the hand of God that's open closes. And as it closes, life dies. Well, beloved, from all of that, you can see what the psalmist is trying to say. He's trying to say that this creation in which we live, of which we are part, cannot function without God. It needs his face, it needs his breath, it needs his hand. Without him, it cannot live. Yes, and you see that same kind of stress in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
It also reflects the language of Scripture. It mentions God being responsible for the leaf and the blade, the rain and the drought, the fruitful and the barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, all things. It says all things are connected in one way or another to the hand of God. And you know, that's a great way to look at creation and at life generally. It's a wonderfully intimate, personal, warm way of speaking. Our God is not just some invisible being somewhere, uncaring, impersonal, indifferent to our fate and to our circumstances. No, his hand is in our lives and in our worlds every day. Opening, closing, working, functioning in one way or another. What a wonderful way to look at life. But I dare say it's also a way of looking at life that we are in danger of losing because more and more in this time in which we are living, we tend to look at life objectively. That's supposed to be a good word, objectively. Impersonally. Even abstractly. You may have noticed creation these days gets boiled down to a bunch of laws. And creatures are being viewed more and more from a strictly materialistic biological point of view. For example, the weather is all about low pressures and high pressures. And winds this. And fluctuations this. Everything in life is being reduced down to cause and effect. It's all very mechanical. And, you know, in that respect, things have changed. You know, at least in the past, we sometimes talked about deism. Deism is the idea that that God first created everything, and after he created everything, then he he kind of took a holiday. He distanced himself from everything he had made. In some ways, creation, the deist said, is like a clock which God winds up. And then slowly let's tick down. Now, of course, that's not biblical. That's not how God interacts with his world or, or refuses to interact with his world. But at least in, in the idea of deism, there is still God. He's still somewhere in the picture. And you know, there's also the opposite of deism. There is pantheism, which really means that God is involved with his creation, but he's so involved with his creation that he becomes indistinguishable from it. You sometimes read these books. God is in the wind, and God is in the trees, and God is in the corn, and God is in this, and God is in that. God and creation are one. They are part and parcel of one another. Now, that, too, is not a biblical way of looking at it. But at least also in that erroneous perspective, God is still somewhere in the picture. But contrast that to the prevailing modern view of life. A view which is thoroughly... Materialistic. 
Man no longer refers to God in any way when he speaks about creation. He doesn't even refer to him in a wrong way. Today, God is totally out of the picture. All is chance, all is process, all is evolution, all is mechanical and impersonal. How far have we not come? And some people call that progress. At one time we used to sing, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now we no longer sing that. We no longer sing about God. And we certainly don't sing about God in connection with creation. Because it's got nothing to do with God. And we certainly don't say anything about God in control of creation. But, beloved, the Scripture said He is. No matter what the modern philosophy or view or worldview may be, the Scripture teaches something vastly different. And Lord's Day 10 teaches us this as well. You might say they teach us to see the world properly, biblically, and to consider everything providentially. Of course, you may wonder about that word providence that you find here in Lord's Day 10. If you were to turn to your Bible concordance and look up the word providence, you won't find it because it's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's not even Aramaic, it's Latin. Providence is a compound word, meaning pro and video, pro before, video to see. So literally, the word providence means to see before. It's the idea that God knows everything and directs everything and sees everything. He knows what comes before it even happens. In other words, providence has come to mean that God is in control. Now, if you want to speak technically or theologically about it, you can say there are three elements to providence. There is, first of all, the element of preservation. It's the idea that God maintains. He he keeps everything that he has made going. Scripture says in Acts 17, for in him we live and move and have our being. In Colossians 1, we read, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the glue of creation. And Hebrews 1 talks about the son sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, beloved, if it were not for God's sustaining, preserving, powerful hand, all things would collapse and fall apart. And aren't the laws of nature that preserve creation? It is the God who has established the laws of nature who preserves his creation. So in providence, there is the element of preservation. There's also the element of government, which is a more active concept. The idea that that God is moving everything forward to a definite end, purpose, goal. 
You find that mentioned in numerous passages. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And listen to these words of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. And my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored him and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see what Nebuchadnezzar and countless others are saying is this God rules. This God reigns. He has a certain object, a certain goal in mind. You can call it his eternal kingdom. The new heaven and the new earth that we've been hearing about in Revelation 21. And so in providence, there is God's preservation. There's God's active government leading everything to a certain conclusion. There's also what we call concurrence. Now, that's a bit of a more difficult concept to grasp. And it refers to the fact that sometimes and often God will work through secondary causes to accomplish something. You see it in nature. One thing produces another. There's all kinds of secondary causes, and and these secondary causes do not act independently or automatically. No, God works through them. You find it here, for example, in Psalm 104. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Notice the lions do not get their food directly from God. They have to hunt for it. But God is also behind their hunting. Or in Amos 4, verse 6, we read, When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Foreign armies come, and they create disaster. But God also uses the disaster for his purposes. So there are many other things as well, beloved. God works through secondary things to accomplish his will. So, beloved, taken together, God, as the Bible ascribes it to him, is a God of great power. He has the power to create all things, as well as the power that holds everything together, the power that guides everything, the power It uses all kinds of human activities and others for his purposes. In short, whatever you think of the hand of God, whenever you think of that hand, think first about the fact that it is a hand of awesome power and great might. But then, beloved, it also has to be said that at times this hand is the hand of discipline. 
And I realize we don't like to talk about that because it's not a very pleasant subject. But yet it is necessary because the Bible teaches us this as well. You know, the catechism deals with it. It speaks about God's hand being connected not only to the nice and the positive beneficial things of life, but it also says this hand of God is sometimes connected to the negative things. Things like drought, barren years, sickness, poverty. And I'm sure you can easily add more negative things to the list. And you might wonder, how does this work? Well, it means that sometimes God uses his hand directly to discipline. You find, for example, in Amos chapter 1, where Amos declares that the Lord will deal with the city of Gaza, the kings of Ashdod and Ashkelon, the people of Philistia, that all of them are going to experience his wrath. And he even says, I will turn my hand against Ekron. And in the Minor Prophets, God says much the same about Egypt and Syria and Assyria. All of them are going to feel his wrath and his judgment. And how does that judgment come? Sometimes it comes very indirectly. It may be a plague. It may be a drought. It may be a foreign army. God uses all kinds of means at his disposal, sometimes also negative means. And of course, we don't always want to accept this. This doesn't always fit with our comfortable and explainable theology. We so often would prefer to insist that drought really is a freak of nature, that barren years are just a case of bad luck, that sickness happens even to the best of us, so what can you do about it, that poverty is a result of economic conditions beyond our control. In short, these things happen and they have absolutely nothing to do with God. And we say that because we want our God to remain consumer-friendly. He has to remain nice and predictable, kind and loving. But you know, in the end, it doesn't work. The ways in which God rules and governs all things cannot be made understandable in every respect. Beloved, when it comes to the providence of God and while some things happen in the lives of certain people, you have to leave room for mystery and for questions. And you have to leave room for the simple, I don't know. I don't know, Lord, why this awful thing happened to me or to someone who is close to me, but you know, and someday maybe you'll let me know as well. Beloved, when it comes to God's governance, in other words, we don't have all the answers. We can have a sanitized theology. But even a sanitized theology doesn't give you all the answers. We need to admit when it comes to the providence of God, there are some things that we cannot figure out. And one of those things, for example, is sin. 
Well, we have a number of principles to guide us when it comes to sin, don't we? Number one, sinful acts are under the control of God and occur only by his permission and according to his purpose. You know, consider the words of Joseph to his brothers in Genesis 45. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. You know, there's a case of different agendas, right? Joseph's brothers have one agenda, and that is to get rid of their spoiled brat of a little brother once and for all. But God has a vastly different kind of agenda. Even sinful acts are under his control somehow. And also we know that God restrains and recontrols sin. We read in Psalm 76, Surely your wrath against men brings you praise. The survivors of your wrath are restrained. God does not unleash upon us everything that our sins and iniquities deserve. And how thankful we should be for that. And we also know that God sometimes overrules sin for good. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Again, you have one purpose, but God has a different, better, higher purpose. And we also know that God never causes sin, never approves of it. Rather, he permits, he directs, he restricts, he restrains, he overrules it. But even having said all that, we still do not have all the answers when it comes to how God rules and how God reigns. And how God always deals with the negatives and the pains and the problems and the hardships of life. You see, this hand, this hand of power, this hand of providence is also at times a hand of discipline. A hand that hurts, that causes pain, discomfort. And difficulty. But yet, beloved, recognizing that, we also need to say there is one great qualifier in all of this. And that is this. At all times, God's hand remains a hand of love for his children. And how do I know that? How do I know that no matter what kind of difficulty, adversity God sends in my life, yet it'll be for my good? I know it because Scripture time and time again testifies to it. The text in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. It doesn't say... and. We know that in, in some things, in a few things, God works for the good. No, in all things. No exceptions. 
And in that same chapter, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Again, not some things or certain things, but all things. And you know, beloved, ultimately it all rests on verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8, in which Paul expresses the conviction that nothing, no one, no matter where, no matter what, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There you have the root of this, this love of God. It's invested in His Son, Jesus Christ. God loves His people with an incomprehensible love. He loved us so much that He sent His only Son into the world to die for us, a bunch of sinners and rebels. And it's impossible that a people who are so dearly bought so costly, so expensive, will easily be forgotten or neglected. We will always be loved. We'll always be cared for. We'll always be led. We'll always be guarded. Beloved, if you're a child of God, this is the perspective you need to take to life. This is the view. This is the position that you need to hold and to defend. What is happening to me today may be painful, it may be terrible, but I know because I believe that in one way or another, my God is going to work it out for my good. That's what my God promises. And my God keeps His promises. And is that not what we read in Hebrews 12 as well? Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son does his father not discipline? And if you are not disciplined, if you're not being molded and shaped by your heavenly Father, then you are illegitimate children and you are not true sons and daughters. And as well as it says in Hebrews 12 verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, you know, it yields a harvest, a harvest of righteousness. And peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, that word harvest is interesting here. It's also mentioned in James chapter 1. There, James says, believe it or not, consider it my... Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds... When you first read that, you think, now, James, you've got it a little bit wrong here. It should read, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face blessings. doesn't say that. It speaks about joy. 
Now, why does it speak about joy? Because these trials do something positive. They, they bring about a harvest, James says, and it's a harvest of, of perseverance and of maturity and of completeness. You see what God is doing in our lives when he sends difficulties and misfortunes and setbacks? He's harvesting. He's acting like the ultimate farmer. He's producing a crop. A crop that otherwise might not appear. A crop called perseverance. A crop called maturity. A crop called completeness. And so, beloved, remember, the hand of discipline for God's children is always the hand of love. Remember that. Take comfort in that. Go forward in the knowledge and the conviction that that your God is the God of creation, the God of providence, and that no matter what terrible things may happen in your life, He will work it out, ultimately, for your good, your blessing, and His glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.